Hey guys, Sarah here. Welcome to Talkin' Fanfic, Episode 3. I have an interview for you today, the legendary Rivka T. Um, if you've been into the Smallville or the Supernatural fandoms, you've probably read Rivka T's stuff. She's one of those that are up in, in my head, sort of the pantheon of authors that I encounter that are just absolute legends. So this was a dream to sit down with her. Um, I think I talk too much in this one, but I'm just learning, you know, how to talk less, <laughs> hopefully. Um, but she she was great, man. Um, so intelligent. She has – there's you can, like, find articles on her on, like, fan lore. And it's enough to say that she's been to law school. She's incredibly educated. And so what I, I think – Every time I sit down and read something from Rivka T, I learn something. And sometimes that's like vocabulary. It can be as simple as that. But it it also just ends up being new, like she gets to the heart of things and new takes on a character. And um, she was just able to like throw a lasso of truth around some of these characters and do something with them. But at the same time, it's it's not always just serious. It's like really fun and, again, intelligent. And her writing is absolutely just luminescent. I know I'm just probably throwing words out there, but um, there's a line in a story of hers called Locked Room Mystery. And she talks about it in my interview with her as her love letter to the Smallville fandom because she started it in about, I think, 2012 – and it sat for a year, and then she did a second chapter, and then it sat for several years, and then she came back and finished it. And so it's almost this like bookend on her Smallville career. And anyway, there's a there's a line in there about Lex and Clark coming together, and quote, the future cracked open like a geode, sharp and sparkling and fractal in its complexity. I don't know. That's maybe the best way I can describe her writing is. Um, sharp and sparkling and fractal in its complexity. There's nothing thoughtless that she puts out there. It just makes you sink a little deeper into your chair, is I guess what I have to say. <laughs> so apologies if I talk too much. I'm still learning. Um, hopefully I'll get better as I go. But I think you'll really enjoy the interview. Again, yeah, just... <sighs> I don't know. The more I learn about these authors the more I feel like I don't know. And that's true of fan fiction and fandom history in general. So I was actually talking to Chaos Blue, who does the Fanfic Maverick podcast, and we're possibly going to talk about delving into some fandom history together. So um, I actually haven't gotten to sit down. I just texted her a little bit about that, but I just want to know it all. I want it all, as Lex Luthor would say. So, um, anyway, it's a beautiful Sunday afternoon now. If you're listening on Monday, sorry, it's Monday, uh, but you'll get through it. We're going to have a great week and a great spring. Pandemic is coming to an end with the vaccine. So, um, things are great. And Cobra Kai Fan Fiction Awards are coming up April 11th. Follow the people on Tumblr. You need to be following about that. Out for a walk, Bitka, Dream Beyond the Fantasy, Miss Violet, um... King Karate. There's probably some people I'm missing, but stay tuned. That's uh, that's coming up, and we got some potentially exciting things happening for the intermission. So, um, I think that's all I have to say. So, enjoy the interview, 
and uh, drop a comment, any any thoughts you have, but read useful arts. Um, we don't say explicitly in the interview, um, but we talk about the theme of law and patent law. And if you read the story, there's a product in there that Lex Luthor invents, and it's called Fosita, P-H-O-S-I-T-A. And that's a little bit of a joke. So you can Google that, or you can search in the show notes. It's just it's just one of those little gems that you pick up. Actually, I didn't pick it up. I picked it up because she said so in the interview. So thank you, Rivka T. You, um, you gave us so much over the course of your fan fiction writing career, which is extant, still going. And I hope you find that spark of inspiration again, because the world... It doesn't deserve it, but it's a it's a privilege when we do get to read your work. So thank you for sitting down with me. I hope this does you some justice, and I hope some people sit down and read Useful Arts, Repentant Leisure, um, Locker Room Mystery, any of these beautiful works that you've written. So enjoy. Well, here we are. Um, today I have with me Rivka T. And am I saying that Rivka T, not Rivka? Yep, that's how I, I have always thought of it. Awesome. Rivka T. And um, if you guys have been listening to this podcast at all, you know I've been reading Smallville fandom since about September, which is about 20 years later, 15 years later than a lot of people. But um, Rivka T's stuff is always mentioned up there with the best of the best in a fandom that already has some remarkable work. I've been really excited to have her on. So thank you for agreeing to come on and, and talk to me today. Thank you for having me. Well, um, I always kind of like to start things off with just you, a little bit of history about you, even besides fan fiction. What is your like, a little bit of your earliest kind of writing memories or even reading? Or did you grow up in a house where you read a lot or were you writing? Can you tell me a little bit about that? So um, as a, a friend of mine uh, says, you know, I invented fan fiction in my bedroom as a kid, uh, you know, before I before I knew what it was, uh, you know, I was telling myself additional stories. I think the, you know, even back to when I was, you know, watching Knight Rider, I did invent additional stories. Um, but I think the first time that I realized that you could actually do this was I was a Syme Gen fan. So Jacqueline Lichtenberg and Jean Laura had have this very, very, let's just say, productive uh, series about mu- mutation in humanity. And in some ways, actually, now that I think about it, it's a, it, it's a little bit like ABO, except a lot less overtly sexual. Mm-hmm. But it uh, it created a new, uh, what they called a larity of humanity. And so there were, you know, Symes who fed on the gens. And this created all sorts of narrative possibilities. Uh, and they actually had a bunch of fanzines, which were mentioned in the books. And so I realized, uh, oh, you know, other people are doing this and I can order these, which I did. And then I also became aware that this happened in Star Trek as well, which, of course, I was a big fan of the original series, uh, which I saw in reruns uh, in the 80s. And so I had sort of always, you know, written them in my head. Uh, and then when I got into the X-Files, a friend of mine told me that you could go online. And this was in the sort of text-based days of the internet uh, and find additional stories about the adventures of Mulder and Scully. And so I did. And at that point, I was like, well, wait, you know, I can do at least as well as the average uh, (laughs) in these. And so I started actually writing and posting. And that's 
uh, and it went from there. Was that on um, some of those, I suppose, just those X-Files-specific archive yep. sites? Yep. Uh, Gossamer and the and the and actually the X-Files. Well, I actually started out on Alt-X-Files Creative, the, uh, the Usenet group. That's how <laughs> that's how far back we were, uh, which transitioned into a mailing list and then the Gossamer Archive. That's funny. That's actually a really similar uh, kind of path to through early Fandomous Expert, who I just interviewed last weekend, and and she was in this X Files fandom mm-hmm. after Star Trek, and she mentions she had bought some Star Trek kind of novel or novelization. And oh, yeah. Yeah. And it, oh, I wish I have it written down somewhere because I'm going to put it in the extra. But it was kind of like it was written by fans and those same fans were publishing zines. So it seems like I had only ever heard of that in Star Trek. So it's cool that you mentioned that there was um, what, what's the what were the novels you mentioned that you were reading first? The Syme Jen and actually Jacqueline Lichtenberg and Dean Laura were big Star Trek fans and and, and also published uh, uh, Star Trek zines as well. And Dean Laura even wrote one of the official tie-in novels. So you know they, these skills are all kind of transferable once you once you get the bug. Yeah, uh, it seems like that those early days then that sort of fandom and fanzine was more enmeshed with the but unofficially kind of. Like, there wasn't as much official separation as there is now, I th- maybe because we didn't have, you know, AO3 or these big kind of archive sites. So it's a good question. I think the separation was just different, right? So it was more, uh, so I think there are today's open secrets, and then there were, uh, you know, in, in the 80s, there was a different set of open secrets, and they weren't as open uh, because, you know, we didn't have as many channels of communication, but... I think the level of crossover is probably about the same. I mean, if you look back, you know, you know, to the the science fiction magazines of the you know forties and fifties, the people coming up there are also like writing what we would now call fan fiction, and they just talk about it differently. Yeah, that's true. That's always interesting to me, kind of the history of fandom and how things got from then to now. Um, and we can talk about it later, but you said Gossamer when you were talking about your X-Files fandom. I know that Candle Beck was writing, I think, on the Gossamer archive as well. And I think that's somebody that we're sort of mutual fans of. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, we can maybe mention her later. Um, so you were writing for X-Files. And I know you, you've written for a ton of different fandoms. Um, but was that, was that kind of your first big fandom? And then from there, how did you kind of get to the Smallville fandom? Right. So uh, X-Files was definitely the first fandom that I, you know, wrote something that I shared with people because it, was, it now seemed very simple to do so. Uh, and, you know, I, I love that. And then I met my uh, writing partner, Mustang Sally, uh, that uh, we worked together uh, in X-Files and in Buffy uh, and had a fantastic time uh, doing it. And she sort of loosened me up and I think got me ready for Smallville, even though she didn't follow me there, sadly. Uh, but, you know, it is what it is. So you guys collaborated on some works? Yes. Yes, we did. Um, and in, in X-Files, uh, where like we basically got really, really mad about how the uh, narrative was treating Scully. Uh, and, and we sort of wrote out how mad we were uh, in the form of a very, very long story. Uh, and we had a fantastic time doing it. And then we both got into Buffy and wrote a bit in Buffy. So Smallville for me was sort of not quite an accident, but, uh, you know, like many people, I think I followed Astolat. 
yes. you know, so she started writing uh, and I was like, okay, fine. And then, uh, you know, I fell in love with Lex as a character and just, you know, I really like very smart, damaged characters uh, and he fit the bill perfectly. Uh, and so that's what got me into Smallville. And there I stayed for a while. Were you um, were you writing during the the run of the show? I suppose I absolutely was. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if it was during the first year, but certainly relatively early on. Yeah, I noticed. So so on Ao three, the archive list you having some seventy some stories, and like a lot of Smallville authors, that number isn't quite right because. A lot of that stuff yeah, that was posted elsewhere was then imported. So it seems like those imports are maybe your earlier work, and then you were writing maybe after that import because not all of it, it's not quite a doubled up number. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I, I so the problem is like I keep meaning to go back and like fix that, and then some of them get comments on it, and I feel like oh I can't lose a comment, right? I and know. that would be so terrible. Uh, so yeah, there is some duplication, um, right? So the Smallville slash archive, and then I, you know, I th I think there were a couple of other archives, and not not everything I wrote was slash, and then there was a general archive. So yeah, there's some there's some doubling in the imports, and then yeah, um, so I definitely I did not write with nearly the same frequency uh, later on, but uh, there's still some stuff that ended up only on the archive. Yeah. I mean, it's still some 50 some works and they're, and yeah. they're all wonderful. And that, yeah, that was one of the big things with prepping for this. I was like, Oh my God. It's like, you kind of got to pick and choose. Do you have certain favorites of, of some of the works you've written? So I would say like a couple things, you know, uh, I, I tend to go through a period where like after I post something, I really hate it for a while and then eventually I can start to see it and I'm like, oh, that was actually, uh, you know, I enjoyed that. So I would say, you know, I, I obviously love the classic tropes. So I always enjoy playing with those. Um, you know, useful arts, I do think was a lot of fun and, and ended up being quite enjoyable in the long term. But, you know, all of them I have, have affection for. You know, it's like, you know, pick your favorite kid. Uh, you know, there, there's there's things I like about all of them. And there's a, there's a, one in particular that I think is unloved. And I understand why it's unloved. Uh, I have no problem with that. But for me, it ended up doing what I wanted it to do. So I, I have learned to accept that. Can I ask which one it is? So, uh, oh, my God, can I even remember the title? Uh, it's this one that's basically about Lex corrupting Clark and, and it goes badly, right? Or you can tell that it's going to end badly. And, uh, like I, I completely understand why that isn't as popular as some of my other stuff, which has a clearly happy ending, but you know, I felt it was what I wanted. So I'm oh trying God, to remember. I've read a bunch of, but I haven't read everything yet. Yeah. It, uh, no. And okay, wait, I'm looking it up. Cause Sorry to put you Boy. on the spot. <laughs> no, no. Uh, I, I feel like this is the title, I think, was from The Sick Rose. Uh, let me see if I can find it. Um, mm. So, Oh, Rose, Thou Art Sick. Uh, and the idea was that uh, basically about corruption. Ceremony of Innocence. Oh, yeah. I love, I, I do know that one. Hold on, let me pull it up here and just make sure it's the one I, yeah. I think it is. Uh, 
that's the one where yeah like clark is like 16 it, like it's a young sort of yep. season one i love that one yes. but uh, but it, you know uh it, it like it's clearly going to end very badly uh, and uh, you know I, I i have a weakness for a happy ending but sometimes the story does not want to have a happy ending yeah and uh, that was one that didn't. And so, uh, and uh, honestly, that cr- contains um, one of my favorite lines uh, or scenes that I've ever written uh, where basically Lionel is, you know, uh, coming in and threatening Lex and, and, and Lex basically uh, threatens to destroy Lionel, you know, by revealing you know, various things about Lionel's business dealings. You know, and Lionel says, uh, well, you wouldn't do that. You know, it'd hurt you too. And Lex leans in and says, well, you know, it's possible you're right. Maybe it's even probable. But if you're wrong, you're going to have a very bad day. Oh, and I, I just uh, and I felt like I had written like my favorite life moment ever. Yeah, that one is I, I was reading that one, I think, last week. I love that. Those early season ones, you know, and it's like. I, I feel like if this show were today, people would be more nervous just because of Clark's age. You know, people are a little more sensitive about that stuff, like writing that early season Clex. But I love it. And also, it's like, to me, it's kind of like, well, one, it's a CW show. So the actors are all 25 plus playing 15 year olds. Right. It's, and they were also super coy about his age. Yeah. Uh, which it, right. And so like in, in later seasons, they say, oh, he was 14 then. Like he was not. 14 <laughs> I was a 24 year old and like you know even 16 you're lying to yourself and I and I were you know this I don't think it was it would be just today like there was uh, there was discussion about this very issue you know at the time and I remember someone basically posting a bunch of screenshots of like okay so this is how the CW wants you to see these people right at Lana too, uh, as well as Clark, uh, you know, in their bathing suits, uh, you know, fo- uh, focusing on their bodies. And so, you know, it is true that popular culture is very messed up about this. But, you know, I think we were reacting to seeing 24 year olds. Yeah, absolutely. It's like fan content is is our reaction to what we're seeing on the screen and what we experience in the show. And the truth of that is that Tom Welling is a 25 year old Greek god. Like just the aesthetics of him are ridiculous. Um, but also, you know, even in fan, in this one, we're sort of lucky too that Clark's an alien, so it's kind of like they don't actually know his real canon age anyway. <laughs> but um, well, so yeah, useful arts is one I want to spend some time on with you. Do you remember kind of if this was an earlier one or a? Or no, I think this was. Uh, so, you know, before Supernatural, uh, Smallville lasted forever. And so I think Useful Arts was basically the show was still on, but I was no longer interested in the show's canon, yeah. um, you know, because they had uh, basically they had already broke broken up Clark and Lex. Uh, and so this sort of, you know, departed somewhere, you know, season five, although it's them like you know, 15 years in the future, but I didn't pay attention to Canon past around season five, but I think it was still on. And, you know, I just wanted to do the, the whole enemies to lovers thing. Yeah. Were you also reading the comics? It seems like kind of a, like a lot of writers, there's sort of a hybrid characterization right. of Lex. Right. Okay. So I have to say, you know, obviously there's so many comics. Um, 
you know, I was a bigger Batman fan in the comics. Um, I did read Superman Batman, uh, which I think actually, yeah, it was running at the time. Uh, and it just, uh, until it got too stupid, even for me. And at that point, I was just picking and choosing anything that I liked. And, you know, I wanted to do Batman. And that was, uh, that, that was fun. These three basically damaged, uh, and, overpowered individuals uh, who, who, who were larger than life and uh, had different reactions to being larger than life. So that was, uh, so yeah, it was just uh, playing with all the tropes and of course, you know, sex pollen, obviously. Uh, yeah, that's the thing. So this story is tagged that way. And the, and the summary mentions this is essentially a sex pollen story, but it's, it like uses that maybe for, I mean, it's throughout, but it's really sort of heavy in the, the first part. But then it's just the reason why it's my favorite story, I think, is that it just like slowly unfolds into this thing that you weren't expecting at all. And by the time you get to the end, it's a, it's so much it's a larger story um, and it's totally beautiful. So I uh, I would tell this is probably my number one Rivka T. Rec, although you should read anything that Rivka T. writes. Um, but this is probably my favorite. And just to talk briefly for a little bit about how I found this story, I was getting into Smallville and just, you know, how you do, you get into a new fandom. And now with AO3, you can filter everything by kudos or bookmarks. And especially in a pairing like Clex, where there's like 7,000 some stories, it's like the shortcut to the good stuff. Although there's certainly hidden gems everywhere, but, um, this one, it's funny because I was reading a bunch of stuff, and for some reason, I remember the first time I read this, uh, or started to read it, I'd gotten through the first couple parts, and I think I was just coming into it in one of those moods of reading where you're kind of like, you're reading a little bit cheaply is the only way I can put it, like you're, you're either scrolling to get to the, to the sex or the good stuff. The good yeah, stuff. the good stuff is, it, which is like, so I think I did that and I got through the first couple parts and for some reason I hadn't finished it. And then I have a twin sister and we're always in the fandom at the same time. And she sent me a link and she said, have you read this? And I was like, uh, maybe let me, let me sit down and read it again. And either I was just in the right frame of mind or it's like any good, it's like literature really. Like if you, if you take the time to put more of yourself into it, you're going to get so much back. And so I read this with attention and like, Oh, I was just glued to my chair for like four hours and it was, it was totally, it's become my favorite. Um, so anyway, I don't know why the first time it didn't hit, but the second time it just really spoke to me. And I love this. And I think one of the reasons is your, your Lex point of view. And you said that you fell in love with Lex. I think like a lot of us do. And he's, cause he's just so sort of flawed and damaged, but, um, Lex's point of view, and I've, I'm working on a work in progress, and I found him very difficult. And one of the reasons is just he's he is the sort of the smartest guy in the room pretty much all the time. Um, when you first started writing, do you remember if you were writing Clark or Lex's point of view, or if that was ever difficult for you? So you know, I think uh, look, uh, you know, I like I clearly have my favorite. Uh, it is clearly Lex, um, and. Uh, you know, this often happens to me, like in X-Files, it was definitely Scully. And my my general habit is, you know, I, 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 I find somebody that I really, you know, connect with. Uh, and then there's like somebody that they want. And, and I'm like, OK, really? 
I guess. Like, if, if you want them, I'm <laughs> sure. Uh, and so, you know, for me, it was it was never hard to see the world in Lex's way. Um, it was, I think, sometimes challenging to, you know, I didn't really want him to be the the world destroyer, you know, evil guy of mo- most of the comics. So there is this uh, actually five five issue like miniseries where uh, called Lex I think it's called Lex Luthor Man of Steel oh. uh where you know you know he's the protagonist uh he's still a bad guy um but he, you definitely see the world from his perspective is it, is it the, uh, and I really like that is it this one yes or? yeah yeah I think so I so I have I, I admit I have the initial issues so I, I don't know what the trade cover is like but you know it he he's the one who's presented as Basically, you know, uh, a, a completely reasonable thing to think is like this guy ha- it has so much power he could destroy us very easily. Uh, this is a thing to worry about, right? And of course, it is a thing to worry about, right? He's, he's not crazy, and frankly, the idea that you know Clark was just good uh, and that was what we needed to protect us has never sat well with me because you know structures are important, right? There's there's a reason that we don't actually think that having a series of kings is a is a very good idea uh, it tends to end badly and so you know uh, that didn't mean that didn't mean lex was a, a good alternative uh, but it meant that his concerns were not wrong so i guess i think the challenge i had was actually making sure that i tried to get out of lex's own head long enough to see how the world looked to other people around him yeah even when you're in his head, though, he's, I don't know what I'm trying to say here. You've got to be sort of politically aware, um, yeah. pepper it with enough sort of classical literature references. In the beginning of the story, he sort of has political aspirations. And as it goes along, he gets to be president. Um, and then, of course, like sort of the scientist. So yes. do you remember if you had to do a lot of research in those things? Or, or are you fairly well versed in like kind of enough of all of that for it to sort of flow as yeah. you're writing? So uh, there were there were definitely stories that I did more or less research for. I, I think there was not a lot for this one, in part because uh, the science I, was just hand waving because it was you know massive geoengineering things that I was like, okay, the Kryptonian science will do that. Uh, so that I didn't get too bogged down in the details of. But um, and you know, right? I would occasionally you know con- make sure that I had my myth right. But uh, you know, I grew up reading Dallaire's Book of Greek Myths and things like that, and you know, uh, Edith Hamilton's mythology. Mm. So uh, that actually was fairly comfortable. Yeah, well, it fits in beautifully, and it reads. You're one of my favorite Lex writers because of all that stuff. That it, it's sort of convincing your handle on all of these things that would sort of be running through his head all the time as someone who's like overeducated and uh, sort of a, a mover and a shaker in the world. And yeah, the global warming thing is particularly present, but and the, um, just a little thing, the eradicator, that's comics canon too, isn't it? The, yes. Okay. Yes. So when it came to comics canon, I literally just like went and pillaged. You know, like, uh, you know, if if there was something that I thought was useful, I'd like, OK, here. Right. Um, uh, you know, like Doomsday plunk. Uh, right. I, I did not make any attempt to maintain any sort of continuity because, you know, they don't either. No. So right. also, you know, weird and threatening Kryptonian stuff. Turns out there's actually a lot of canonically weird and threatening Kryptonian stuff. 
Yeah, it all works perfectly in this. The and Brainiac is is really really fun, and he's always sort of like dangerous, but sort of and cartoonish since he can kind of inhabit any sort of body he wants. Every time he pops up in this story, he's just like Zod will reign, and we will build a new Krypton. I don't know where I was going with that, but he's just a really fun villain to to write into this one. Well, I have to admit, I, you know, I was always standing on the shoulders of and like a pale emulation of uh, Livia's Manifest Destiny, mm. where he plays that role. Uh, and is just like the perfect Brainiac story. Oh, my uh, God. In, in my in my opinion. I love that story. That's somebody I, I can't remember if I asked her already or not. But that's that's one of my bookmarks list that is. Yeah, I had forgotten there is I could see now why maybe that would have been either inspiring or kind of in your head a little bit because. Um, that one's fun too. So on the, the structure of this is, I don't think, I didn't notice it on a first read, but it has all great stories. You can read it a second time and then start picking up stuff. Um, the title and then the section titles are all thematic, uh, related to patent law. Um, do you remember how you came up with that? So, you know, I, I did, uh, I thought, I basically just thought it would be funny, right? So, so like, Lex is constantly like making fun of everybody, including himself. Uh, right. And, and like, that's the, he, the name he gives the stuff, uh, is basically a joke at his, uh, pretty much at his own expense. Cause he doesn't expect anybody else to get it. Um, <laughs> and, and you know, Clark never cares. Uh, right. And he's the only one who knows uh, the, uh, the, he's the only other one who knows the name of it. So I think that's, uh, I, I was sort of playing with Lex the scientist and frankly, you know, patent law terms are actually kind of funny. So why not? Um, and, and so, uh, and, you know, the, the constitutional um, provision in, in the U.S. providing power uh, for Congress to create a patent law uh, it, uh, says that they can make laws to uh, promote uh, science and useful arts. And although it sounds like science would be the patent law at the time, the, the framers actually meant science, what we would now say literature uh, and useful arts was what we would now call science. So useful arts are are the foundation of the patent laws. So that's that's how we got the main title. And then I just chose basically uh, funny uh, terms from patent law uh, for the sections. Yeah, the, the sections are, uh, there's seven of them. And I think it also really just makes a really nice sort of structure. Um, but anticipation. So yeah, and they kind of go with obviously sort of what happens. So anticipation is kind yes. of your sex ball and setup. Lex sort of proposing his deal. He wants uh, Clark to kind of back off on his sort of uh, anti-Lex front so that Lex can look better politically because he has aspirations to be president. Right. And then he's going to give Clark this sort of gift of like being able to be intimate with the human because he very astutely figures out that Clark hasn't had that much luck. And uh, so anticipation, I don't know, sort of goes with that. I love that. And then non-obviousness, that I have written down that Lex is kind of circling around what will become the big plot point, which is this big terraforming plan to basically save the Earth from global warming using this Kryptonian technology. Um, I'll go through these real quick, but I want to circle back to uh, limited times. um, There's this asteroid or this object coming toward Earth. We don't know what it is. Um, and then sort of on the romantic front, feeling, sex, all that stuff is sort of escalating as well. There is this feeling of like impending 
something's going to happen or we have limited time. So limited times works really well for that. Um, utility is number four. Um, that's like Brainiac appears. And that's really, to me, I was kind of penning that as like, and I'm still learning about structure, but sort of the midpoint of the story where Lex implements his plan, he manipulates Clark, and in that way he kind of trades his relationship with Clark to save the world. Um, and that's like the big sort of crux of the action in the first part of the story. And then it kind of like, to me, there's still action and stuff, but it feels like mm-hmm. the last three chapters are a little bit of a sort of a denouement. But there's a time yeah. jump. Kara becomes a main character in that second part. Interference is kind of when Kara comes in. That's the fifth part. Uh, six is equivalence. Um, mm-hmm. Lex is president. Kara is uh, secret service or bodyguard. And that's really fun. And we can talk about Kara. This is the best Kara I've ever read. She's so much fun. Kidnapped by homophobia. Oh, my God. Uh, Kidnapped by homophobia. <laughs> oh, just, I guess, to explain to the reader real fast. Basically, Karen Lex end up kidnapped. The kidnapper says, oh, uh, the, some, the augury was very clear that the Kryptonian was the love of your life. And Kara quickly realizes, oh, God, she mean, he means Clark. <laughs> so he's accidentally kidnapped Kara, kidnapped by homophobia. And Lex corrects, actually, you mean heteronormativity. <laughs> This is a great line. Um, and then the last act is embodiment. And that's where really um, finally Clark and Lex talk about uh, what they should have talked about 20 years or whatever. Um, and it's a happy ending. So that's like the rough outline of the story. Um, oh, gosh. What was I going to say? Oh, just one of the things. So when you're starting the story, you think it's just this like, sex ball and sort of story, which is like a trope we get from Star Trek and some early fandoms. Um, but it really starts to turn into something else. And I feel like it, un- it unfolds pretty slowly. And part of that is Lex's point of view. And I feel like what you do really well is that Lex, sort of everything's there. On a second read, you can kind of see the plan emerge as you as you go. But you don't, he's sort of hiding all the time, even in his thoughts, he doesn't he tells the truth but not all of the truth. Um I guess do you have any thoughts on that like kind of dissimulation in Lex's point of view yeah, or Lex hiding right. that kind of thing and his relationship with the truth. Right. So right. So I think you know Lex's big weakness is or one of them is you know he thinks that he sees further uh and you know sees more truly than other people um and in many ways he does but he's also blind to some of his own uh weaknesses or like there's things that he doesn't want to face directly like because he knows uh from the as soon as he sort of figures out that he could use the eradicator like he knows uh he's gonna do it uh and it's gonna be a betrayal of Clark uh, and it's going to be huge. And uh, he, he would rather just like blow it all up than have to say, you know, I'm sorry. He really, you know, he, 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 he won't even let himself think of it as a sacrifice. And that I think is actually why he goes so wrong because, you know, he knows he's making a trade uh, and he's pretending it's a trade that, you know, basically just hurts him uh, and hurts Clark, but he doesn't, actually let himself think like it hurts our relationship um, because he doesn't let himself believe that there is a relationship. And that's where, uh, that's where it all goes. So, uh, so wrong. Um, 
and you know, and I think uh, you know one of the things that I'm very interested in in the long term is um, sort of moving on with people that you still love despite the fact that they did really terrible things, right? Uh, and and so it was uh, important to me that at the end, like say, look, I, I might well have done the same thing, right? This was seven billion people versus you and me, and I I don't think he would be who he is if so he's he's very selfish in in many ways but in that way uh he he would always have chosen to save the earth yeah i think uh in the show i don't know how much of it is in i guess in the comics and the comic you mentioned man of steel you get a very clear idea that lex is a humanist and sort of humans first and that clark is a force that it's kind of limiting humanity's potential. But as far as like being a hero, Smallville is always pretty good. I, I liked that they had that sort of warrior angel thing. And mm-hmm. that was something where Lex, he did want to be the hero. And he sort of always wants to save the world, which is sort of the tragedy of him becoming a villain. Um, that he does want to do good and, and save people. Yeah. Um, so... With sort of the the plot elements and sort of it's a pretty like plotty story. There's a villain and there's kind of uh, comic-y stuff like the Eradicator. Um, mm-hmm. Kara was kind of a surprise to me. Her being introduced in like the second half. Do you remember? Did you have kind of the whole idea of the story sketched out, or did it come as I you were mean, writing? I. Ha- you know, I had a lot of the basics. Kara, I think, came in and kind of took over, uh, right? She kind of I, feels I like she I, does. Yeah, she she didn't really. And and in fact, like, you know, I feel good about what happened to her because, in fact, she ends up not being like central to their story, but she's still her own person. Like, she has her own arc. Like, she's doing things. She has a full life. And one of uh, one of Lex's blind spots is he sort of assumed that she couldn't. Yeah. Right? He sort of assumed that uh, she was sort of an appendage to, to Clark and Lex, and she wasn't. Um, and that was one of, you know, one of his big mistakes. And so I, she ended up, I think, uh, serving as an object lesson that, in fact, the world was different than Lex thought it was. And so, you know, I, th- I think she goes off uh, and has a fantastic heroic life and le- basically leaves these two assholes to stare into each other's eyes, right? <laughs> like, uh, uh, um, which is what they want. So everybody's happy. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I, I knew I knew I wanted Lex to perceive a bunch of echoes and with his relationship with Clark and then for her to refuse them, I think was important, uh, to, to moving him forward. Right. Cause, cause he was basically stuck and, and seeing Kara as a replay of Clark was part of his stuckness. Yeah. So after basically Lex betrays Clark, there's kind of a time jump and it's sort of this period where you understand that Lex gets what he wants as in he saves the world and he becomes president, but obviously he's lost maybe the most important thing to him personally. Um, right. But then Kara functions almost as this, like, not a proxy to Clark exactly, but you do it. She actually works out great because not only you're right that she has her own arc, she's independent. She kind of takes over a little bit of that second half of that story. Definitely. Like she's a central figure 
she is one of the only people like that Lex definitely underestimates and definitely doesn't anticipate because there's this whole thing with the change and uh, oh, how did I put this? The uh, ter- the whole thing with terraforming, like the world mm-hmm. has changed, but also Lex and Clark are sort of changing on like a DNA slash chemical level. And Lex assumes that Kara's needs this sort of sex ball and object, which is this faucetta chemical that he's made, invented, and that goes along with the patent thing. He assumes she needs it, but she absolutely doesn't. But she kind of has, I don't know if she falls in love with him, but she has like a an infatuation with him. And she sort of makes a pass and he's completely taken aback and then just assumes that it's because he's been affected by this Kryptonian quote unquote pheromone. And I love that she like totally surprises him and she's like, you're an idiot. That's, that's not what this is at all. She, she knows for a fact that it's not affecting her because she's been through like Kryptonian puberty. Um, but, uh, Lex is kind of associating the two of them, but she's, she's sort of her own person, but it is, a great arc to sort of take up this time where Clark and Lex are sort of pining for each other because you really, they're not in the same room together from the end of like, I think part three, maybe all the way until the end of part seven, they finally come sort of together. And there's a Lex gets kidnapped again. And it's one of the coolest like action scenes back in the cave where Lex uses the cave that he sort of previously manipulated Clark into giving him access to, but then he uses it to save the day. Anyway, I just thought that Kara, yeah, she just sort of fits perfectly in that. And so I don't know exactly what my question was. And you sort of already talked about it, but do you remember if she was initially in there or was she just supposed to be a smaller role and then she kind of grew, as yeah, you said? Yeah, so... so- so, you know, a couple of things, uh, as several people pointed out to me, uh, one thing that ha- always happens in the stories of this type that I write is Lex loses his hand, yeah. right? So, but I always try and make it in some way that is not just like kryptonite poisoning, because uh, that seems, uh, that seems insufficient to me. Yes. Um, so, you know, I was struggling with how the story was going to end. And uh, I think one of my beta readers said, you know, uh, like, what always happens to Lex in your stories? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> That should definitely be it. And you know, I think Kara's role sort of grew organically also just as she, you know, she like I liked her uh, and I wanted her to do well by her. I wanted her to come out like as far as she was concerned, she was the hero of this. And I, and I wanted that to be correct, like for, for, at least for, from from her perspective. Uh, and so, uh, you know, when I got a chance to use her that way, I did. There's also a great moment at the end kind of where, yeah, so the, at the the very end, sort of the final crisis is Brainiac, of course, comes back, as he always does. Kara is sort of brainwashed. Clark shows up. Lex is obviously, there's a great line, like, why? I think Clark asks Brainiac, like, why is it always Lex? What is it about him? Uh, which is super fun. But so Lex is in trouble. But of course, Lex, as a smart and great Lex always does, he manages a way to save the day, but then loses his hand. And then kind of the final unraveling of the rest of the plot is that uh, there's a scene in the Oval Office where Kara and Lex are talking, um, and Lex has lost his hand, but they're kind of saying farewell, um, and she swoops him down into like this... Uh, World War Two kind of coming home kiss. Um, was that? Did you remember if that was something that sort of occurred to you while writing, or 
I just thought that I was mean, such like, a fun she, thing. She she earned it, right? Uh, you know, and you know she she wondered about what it was like, and so uh, I thought that was a, a good way for her to say goodbye. Now she's going to go off and you know have some fun with somebody, maybe maybe Flash again. Although I'm not sure she goes back for seconds. Uh, I'm not sure that's her type. <laughs> yeah, present. I kind well, of love the idea of Wally and Care. I don't. I think it's just pure fun, probably. Well, yes, that's exactly right. So like, and, and right. So, so the thing was like Lex had sort of assumed that she was this, you know, uh, pure virginal person. And meanwhile, she's like going and, you know, working off some tension with Flash. And he had no, no clue because uh, of his selective uh, intelligence about these things. Yeah, I love that. Is your, just a quick thing, is your headcanon Flash is is uh mine is Wally West from the Justice League animated series. Is that yeah, yeah. pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. And I sort of expected that would be like confusing mentally because Rosenbaum voices him, but in my head he does such a great job. It's like a completely different character. Yeah. He's super fun though. Um, so that's kind of a good outline of the, the story. I was just gonna read and point out one of my favorite, the scene with Lionel, and it's near the end. And essentially, I think at this point in the story, it's after the time jump. Lex has betrayed Clark. Clark's not talking to Lex. Um, let me find it real fast. Oh, and there's just, I'm just flipping through this. There's a, there's a, there's a scene where anybody who writes Lex great does it, where he sometimes says things that are so true and, uh, they're almost so painful that you're like, you, you would wonder if you're in that situation if it's, if he's joking, but there's a, uh, he's talking to Kara about, she's made the pass at him and he's talking about the pheromone and she's like, screw you, like, I don't need it, essentially. And then he says, um, my father never loved me, like said, it leaves marks. And it's just one of those great Lex lines where you're like, it's so true. Why would you say that? Right. Right. And he says it, so, right, he says it to draw its sting, right? Uh, he says it so that he doesn't have to feel it. Um, but of course he does. It doesn't stop him from feeling it. Yeah, that's there's something there with Lex's relationship with the truth. Um, yes. The oh God, this is such a great scene. So the Lionel scene where um, Lex goes to Montana. Did you know that you wanted Lionel alive in this one? For, had season seven happened yet where Lionel dies? Oh, God, I can't even remember. Um, I think maybe not. Uh so so this this is definitely like the post season five, but it might have been only like season six. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think uh, this was actually my way of giving uh, Lex a little bit of victory, like having his father dead is not a victory. Right. So having his, yeah. his father alive and uh, helpless, um, it, like it's a mean victory, like it's not it's, it's not a good or healthy victory, but it is a victory for him. So, uh, yeah, I think that's why. That's why it's there. Yeah, and actually, I because I wasn't sure, I couldn't figure out by reading it if season seven had happened yet. But it's sort of a beautiful. Just on another note, it's kind of a beautiful alternate version of what did end up happening at the end of season seven. Where I don't know if you remember that there's this plot thing where um, there's the whole Veritas and Traveler stuff. Like it started to get sort right. of silly, but right. the sort of the heart of it, which was good, is that. Lex thinks that there's this alien um, that's going to destroy the world or he, Brainiac kind of brainwashes them that way. But you would 
again, like the Man of Steel stuff, it like to- totally makes sense from Lex's perspective if there's this alien that's going to come and he's convinced that it's sort of his destiny to confront the uh-huh. Traveler. And so he ends up getting this orb thing. But then he actually does destroy the fortress. So it's like this great alternate version in this story where he also destroys the fortress to save the world. But it's under totally different circumstances. So I just remember thinking, oh, that's great. You're either ahead of your time or you've given a really great twist on something that was it was good in the show. But it's always a bit silly, you know, and. Right. Yeah. Well, right. So, so you know, this is uh, the 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 show struggled with trying to deal with Lexa's inevitable villain in ways that I think fandom is able to recuperate. In uh, so we can accept that Lex is inevitably going to be the villain and still have him be the good guy for now, right? Like that's whereas I think the show basically couldn't couldn't deal with him being the hero even for like one episode no yeah oh it's just a whole it's a whole thing just to grapple with the writing and what they what you think the audience is supposed to come away with and then how like clark's reactions like and you can just drive yourself crazy in circles like well you know like i can't remember there's one i think it was the club zero zero episode or one of those or maybe the episode where Lex is like uh, sleeps with a woman, and then she, yeah, I think she does one of those, and it's like a loft scene, and Clark's like, "I want you to change," or and it's like totally not Lex's fault, sort of at this point, but Clark just lays into him, and as yep. you know, as as the audience, you're like, I can't tell if this is because Clark is kind of angry and immature and defensive, and the writers know that, and you're supposed to feel bad for Lex, or if they're trying really hard to like force the audience to go. Clark's right. Lex is a bad yeah. guy. Like, there's all kinds of episodes like that. So, I think it was Jennifer Cruzy, I think, had this great thing about um, uh, Buffy and Spike, and sort of how the, there was this uh, huge divergence between what the audience saw and what the writer, or, you know, whoever had sort of created that scene uh, thought they it, thought they had created. So they thought they had created this incredibly unhealthy relationship. And that was sort of true. But like they knocked down an abandoned house while they were having sex. Which Such is a not great actually scene. Bad. It, right. But it, that that's actually not bad. It's not bad to knock down a house that's falling apart. It's 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 actually good. You then get to build something new when you're done. Right. So so the metaphor. Right. And I think I think you're that that episode. You're absolutely right. Like what they thought they were showing was, you know, Lex is so bad and corrupt. And what they were actually showing was, uh, you know, whatever Lex does, you know, he's like Meghan Markle. Right. The the press is going to sort of uh, kill him for it. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, uh, and he's the one with whom our sympathies lie. Yeah, I think they did. It's a combination of Rosenbaum's performance and, you know, some good writing uh, that I think the audience, as most of the audience, sort of fell for Lex. And by the time the writers realized that, shit, it's season four and we need to make this switch happen, then you kind of get a concussion with how fast they try and, like, yep. turn things around. And, and then, yeah, then you just get some awkward writing and, and plot points. And you always, you always wonder, like, man, if they would have just... I don't know. I guess they had to stick with canon, but it's like, ugh. But did they really? Did they really? Yeah, actually, and that's – sorry, I'm getting off topic. And I will read this section online in a second. But I always think 
and I didn't I haven't watched the entire 10 seasons cuz I lose interest after Lex leaves and at the end of season 7 but they bring him back obviously in the finale and they have that whole thing and you, we can talk about that if we get to locker room mystery but you have the thing where Lex lose like they they do this thing where Lex comes back yeah. and it's like they have this great confrontation where Lex is like I'm destined to be your enemy and you are destined to be the hero and this is the future and then they have this crazy thing where Tess erases his memory because I think they need to get to the comics where they're like, well, Flex doesn't know who Clark Kent is. And you're like, right. fuck you guys. Like, to me, just to put, throw in my two cents that doesn't matter, I'm like, you know what would have been the greatest fuck you from Lex is if he would have known and Clark knows he knows, but if Lex would have still done his thing and been the villain. He could still do all the evil stuff, but he knows exactly who Clark is. And it's like this big fuck you that if you would have told me, I would have kept your secret. And that's like the whole thing with Clark and Lex is that Clark never trusted him. Yep. But instead, they do this loony memory loss plot. And you're like, guys, it just just negates everything you've done for seven plus seasons. Well, I should say that, uh, it, it, did you make it to watching Oliver in the showgirl's costume? Because you really ought to watch that episode because he looks fantastic. I have seen screenshots. I do need to watch that episode. There was somebody, had, I don't know, somebody did a fake, maybe it was yours, that I think they mentioned that. And then I looked it up and I was like, holy shit, he looks wonderful. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but let me read this, um, and this okay. is going to take a couple minutes because I was like, oh, I can't. I kept trying to highlight small sections, and I was like, I just – and I'm not going to read the entire scene, but like half the scene. So this is my favorite scene from Useful Arts. This is the part where, yeah, it's after sort of the main big plot points have happened. Lex is feeling guilty. Clark's not talking to him. Um, and I think the fallout with Kara has happened, so he's feeling particularly low. <laughs> And the first uh, sentence of the section is, there was one powerfully effective self-punishing measure he hadn't used in a while, so he scheduled a trip to Montana. Silix goes to Montana, and Lionel is alive and well in Montana, and we see that Lex is essentially keeping him kind of pinned up in like a sort of a prison, but it's like got two-week-old newspapers and plastic scotch glasses <laughs> Which is great. Um, But I'll just read uh, the majority of their conversation because it's so good. Okay. So Lionel's kind of like, oh, finally here to see your old man and get some advice. And he says, after all these years, you finally recognized your need for your father's wisdom. I have a number of scenarios to eliminate the threat. He shook his head, relieved to see that some things were eternal like his father's inability to see anything but prey and other predators in the world with him. That's not why I asked you here. I want to talk about what happened years ago in Smallville. He sat. The chair was leather, comfortably warm, as if his father had sat in this place many times. Ah, his father said, and then stopped, waiting for Lex to play the supplicant. Lex held on to the glass as if it were the only thing between him and the abyss. At the time, it didn't make sense. Why would he believe anything you said? Now I realize that was the wrong question. He was looking for reasons to distrust me. But why did you take every chance you could to make it worse? 
And Lionel answers, Because you were in love, Lex. It was a struggle to control his expression, that his father would focus on that of all things. You still are. His father, still caught in the drama he thought he was living, crossed the room in a few quick steps and knelt to cup his hand around Lex's chin. Lex didn't pull away. You're too sentimental to change how you feel, but I knew it was standing in your way, and I realized that changing its behavior would be enough to put you back on the right path. His thumb dug into Lex's flesh sharply enough to throb, then he let go and stood again, turning so that Lex could only see his profile. You found your destiny, and no matter how much you hate me for it, I know I did the right thing. You've been strong for so many years now. I know you had the opportunities to submit to it, to beg its forgiveness, but it would have stopped you from reaching the heights of which you had proved capable. Lex looked down at his drink, the amber liquid mute and unhelpful. Denial would have been useless. Lionel would treat it like confirmation. And what was there to deny? He could say that Clark's forgiveness, if it could have been won, would have forever been conditional. But Lionel thought that everything was conditional. Lionel had raised Lex like a greyhound, racing forever towards the mechanical rabbit of his father's approval, never attainable, and not that appetizing if it had been caught. Lionel would never understand that Lex couldn't tolerate the same endless training from Clark. And why should Lionel understand it? Here Lex was, still running in circles on that well-worn track, long after the spectators had gone home to their families. He put the tumbler down on the table, the soft clink like a distant gunshot. Then he stood and left, ignoring Lionel's calls, which were first bemused, then vicious. He should have killed Lionel a long time ago. Now, there was no benefit in it. So that's my favorite part. I think it's, I think it's brilliant. I think it's beautiful and obviously painful and uh, a great Lionel scene. You know, he's referring to Clark as it, the thing. And he's, you know, in this way, there's this whole thing with Lex and Lionel, like, a lot of people write Lionel off, like, oh, he, you know, fuck Lionel, and, you know, yes, fuck Lionel, but also he did love his son, but in this twisted, horrible way. And then that greyhound metaphor, I could just, oh, it's like the perfect metaphor, and the the image of Lex, and and the compare. sorry, I'm just throwing too much at you, but the... The thing I like about it is that it does rightly compare Lionel and Clark as this, they both kind of string Lex along and lie to him. And we have this term now gaslighting that we, that was happening. And then also just the painful sort of sadness of an image of still running, 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 running after everyone's gone. So, ugh, I could just die for lines like that. Do you just... Was that, uh, I don't know, is that one of your favorite scenes or lines? Do you love that? I love it. So, you know, I, I got to credit uh, Mustang Sally here. Uh, basically, she taught me, like, sometimes you should kill metaphors, uh, but uh, sometimes you should just see where they go, right? Uh, and it, sometimes they won't work and, and you'll end up cutting them. But for a particular kind of drama, which, you know, the superhero genre lends itself to, uh, like, they're really good. 
for illustrating character and uh, telling you how somebody thinks, right? And so Lex, Lex is so much fun to write because he has such a wide-ranging mind, right? So you can pick metaphors from anything, and they're plausibly within the kind of thing that he would think. So you just have immense freedom to play with him and to play with language. And so the the other thing I think that is related to that is like it's an extended metaphor right it's not just dead the the whole point is that you can actually keep going with it and again you know that can go wrong like and there are people who don't like it and that's fine but i think you're right that like the last part where he's he's on the track alone is actually what what you know what makes it live yeah it really caps yeah you're right like if you it would still i would have still noticed it i think if you hadn't had that last part but you're right that that's what like sort of vaults it into the the higher what you're trying to get to with because I I struggle with metaphor I think I overuse it and I have to remember that because the point if you do it well is that it gets to something that you can't just do with words and so kind of the higher truth or whatever you're getting with that is a loneliness and an isolation and a like a hunger for a trophy which is right. Lionel's approval or Clark's approval, which is the oh, this is the tragedy of those early seasons that Lex really thinks that this is like he's a, he is in love. Even if you don't ship them, it's like he doesn't have any friends. Clark is his first friend and it is a breakup. Like, uh, yeah, it just even even when the show is silly, I think it was so strong in that Lex Clark arc. No, good idea. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean. I guess I would say, like, I think just in terms of the metaphor, it really does matter. So, you know, I ended up later in Supernatural and, you know, I love writing Dean Winchester, but you gotta, you gotta have a completely different range of metaphors uh, if if it's uh, Dean's or even Sam's point of view. Uh, they, they just think completely differently. And, and Dean is always going to be concrete. He's not going to be making analogies across lots of history or, uh, right. Uh, so he would never. Uh, think in this way and so the the beauty of lex is that you know he has uh he he reads he thinks uh and he considers it his job to know a lot of random stuff and so you can pick from whatever you want and it's plausible for lex on that note and you've kind of talked about sort of a little bit about how you grew up kind of reading poetry and stuff but are you a big shakespeare fan um so I'm not, I wouldn't say particular. Uh, okay. Except for Hamlet. So Hamlet is my favorite play. I've never seen a production where I didn't learn something. In high school, I wrote a senior paper on this play called Keen, which was by Alexander Dumas Pere, um, but was updated by, I think it was even, I think it was Sarge. Uh, I'm not even, that could be wrong, but, uh, you know, some major, uh, you know, 20th century French writer, um, updated it and it's about the famous Shakespearean actor Edmund Keane and it's about theatricality and it's about Hamlet and anyway uh, so I love Hamlet uh, the, the rest of Shakespeare I uh, you know I took a Shakespeare course in college from Marjorie Garber who was fantastic so I think I'm a reasonably okay educated Shakespeare reader but um, not my first theatrical love except for Hamlet. That's I know I've heard of Marjorie Garber. I was trying to I'm a I was a French major, but I always loved to read and my sister was an English lit major and I was always jealous of the classes cuz so she has a better handle on this stuff than I do. You should read Keen cuz uh it's uh it's a great it's a great play and it's in French. So Oh, perfect. There you go. Um I've noticed there's a couple of different stories where Lex basically tells, "Oh, it's definitely in um 
Repent at Leisure, where Lex yeah. tells Clark, you know, don't play the Hamlet or something to that effect. Um, but I was also thinking of uh, Richard III, which I think you may have referenced an academic, mm-hmm. but uh, just the, like in that first uh, Now is the Winter of Our Discontent speech where he's mm-hmm. cheated a feature by dissembling nature. And I, I okay. that does make me think of Lex kind of like, He's yep. been che- literally scarred like Richard III has his hunchback and um, like he just sort of deserves better in the world. And and I, I don't know, it gets to something too like Richard III in that play is kind of scheming and hiding. And I feel like Lex does a lot of, like I said earlier, does a lot of hiding from even from himself. And and it's like this whole thing, his relationship with the truth, like he hates that Clark lies, but he also is not the most... Yeah. always the truthful person either i don't know it just makes I, I just like those comparisons with kind of i don't know literary figures oh yeah yeah um everyone i've talked to about smallville phantom has read this one but if you haven't you definitely need to um is there anything else you kind of want to say on useful arts i mean it's just it's just my favorite uh, uh well uh, uh that's delightful to hear i mean uh, um i guess i would say the, the one thing that i think i'm the only one who who ever noticed is I have this thing about when, uh, so after the rift, when does Lex call Clark by his name? Oh, that's, yeah, right? okay, okay, I was going to ask you about and, that, and, yes. And so, uh, and I think it's actually in uh, several of my stories, uh, I don't think people have often picked up on it, but like, in this one, he actually doesn't say Clark, He, I mean, he thinks Clark, but he doesn't say Clark's name for, I think, the entirety of the story until the last paragraph. I, that could be wrong, but but there's definitely a long period. I, I think I made it harder to see if I was if I was doing it now. Maybe I'd have him think Superman. Um, although I'm not sure because in some sense he's still like holding out hope for Clark, but he won't say it until the very end. I forgot I was going to ask you that because and this is like my third or fourth read and it was a fr- I don't know why it took me so I think because I was reading closer but I hadn't picked up on that and I did this time with that last line. So the line is. So they're embracing, finally. And Lex's last line is, Clark, he said, for the first time since he'd given up hope, his face pressed against that alien skin, the smell still the same, the heat of it, Clark. And I was like, oh. And as far as I can tell, you are correct that he doesn't actually call Clark Clark. He does think of them, even in his perspective in his head, in the opening scene where... Superman comes in very Superman-like in the either the penthouse or his office. He does think of him as Superman until there's a there's a moment where Lex reveals his kind of pitch for this Fosita, this kind of Kryptonian Viagra, and he really takes Clark off guard. And then you have this line. Uh, let's see. Lex says, "Did you ever wonder why it never worked out for you and Lana, or Chloe, or Lori?" or Lois, or any of the others? There. That expression wasn't Superman's at all. It was pure Clark Kent. By the way, this is my favorite characterization of the Clark-Lex dynamic, just rolled into one sentence. It was pure Clark Kent. Fear and denial and moral outrage rolled into one self-righteous package, angry at Lex because Lex was making him lie. So it's perfect. But after that, he's Clark. And I thought that was... 
just really strategic and perfect. But I think you're right that he doesn't actually call him Clark, which in the show they're constantly saying each other's names, Clark, Lex, Clark, Lex. Like yeah. it's all like it's more than would probably really be happening. Like we tend to overuse yeah. that in writing. So I love that I had I didn't even notice that until this read on that last line. So well done. <laughs> A little Easter egg. Oh, I love that. Um, I won't go as deep into Repent at Leisure, but I will say this is one of my favorites as well. It's kind of a play on like a Bond sort of soulmates, kind of, but more like a, you know, a bonding against their, like Harry Potter does some of this type of thing. Um, but it ends up, it, it also has kind of a plotty sort of adventurous some action stuff that happens and lex all spoiler lex loses his hand but in a really beautiful and necessary way um i don't know is there anything you can tell me about repent at leisure what you remember about writing about that story so so this one uh so i'm not sure if the show had ended its run but it was it must have been getting very close to the end um and so I was not, again, I was sort of disregarding everything that happened uh, after season five. Um, and I just, you know, uh, so this was an auction story. So uh, I think the, the trope request was forced to marry. And I thought about it for a while. Uh, and I also researched Kryptonian marriage rituals because, again, you know, the Internet is big and, and something has happened somewhere in the comics, no matter what. So, so I actually stole the ritual row from the comics. Although I, I changed it somewhat because I'm perverse. And, you know, I, I I loved the idea of like, so like Kryptonians were basically such awful people that, you know, they didn't have divorce. Right. Uh, right. So it really was till death do you part. Uh, on the other hand, they didn't have any prohibition on actually like causing the parting. Um, so. So with that in mind, I, was, I, I sort of thought, well, wouldn't it be funny if. It gave you influence, like if both of them had influence over each other. And then, uh, and because like this was, I mean, for me, this was all about like Lex getting what he thought he wanted and it being the most terrible thing ever, right? Like it, it's exactly right, except for the thing that makes it horrible. I do think Lex has a very specific idea about consent and it's not a good one. My version of Lex thinks of consent as something that is still like free no matter what coercion you're under as long as you're actually mentally free and so this was to him this was like the worst thing he could possibly have done and he didn't mean to do it and he and he found it morally horrifying and so i thought it was just fascinating to put lex in that situation which he legitimately had not meant to do although he had meant to do something else kind of shitty (laughs) (laughs) the story of lex's life sort of (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. Um, and so, uh, uh, you know, to me, that's just the most fascinating thing. You know, some a character who, who has very fixed ideas. And also, by the way, like Lex, Lex also, I think, uh, my version of Lex basically thinks that no matter what, uh, like he's in control no matter what. So he, like everything that happens to him, he, he in some way deserves. And uh, he doesn't necessarily apply the same standards to other people. But he is willing to coerce people. He's just not willing to, like, brainwash them. And so he feels like uh, he has done really pretty much the most terrible thing he could possibly have done. And going from there was a lot of fun. And then then that led naturally to, you know, the resolution where, you know, he he has to perceive himself as responsible for uh, Clark's choices. 
and say, and basically say, you know, I can't possibly do that. Uh, and, and that's how he loses his hand. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's such a ride, and it's so much fun. And one of my favorite things is just seeing <laughs> the difference between their reactions as they realize there is this sort of coercive element that they put on these bracelets. They basically make this vow, which is essentially a marriage vow about uh, faith and duty and all the stuff that we think of as marriage, but it's literal. So they end up, you know, if Clark or Lex say something suggestive, they sort of have to. And so Clark, Clark actually figures it out first. And his like reaction is just kind of like, well, I hope, uh, this doesn't get out of hand. <laughs> and then he, but he's like kind of enjoying the sex. Uh, he's really enjoying the sex and just kind of being with Lex and, but he just kind of goes with it, which to me is like, oh, it's such a Clark thing. And then of course, as you say, Lex is completely horrified, throws up. Is just disgusted with himself and takes it all on his shoulders. Uh, but he, of course, he doesn't tell Clark. He's like, Clark can't find <laughs> <Right>. out. <laughs> but the way that Clark is kind of like, eh. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and at the time too. Uh, so this was t- 2009. Yeah, that'd be about right. So I'm thinking it also goes into sort of the whole. Um, you know, we it's like almost hard to remember now, but the the, the gay marriage used to not be legal in this country and then it was just the states as we do in this country federalism the states can decide and of course i actually live in kansas so i know we had to wait until the supreme court made that decision for us and i think that was like 2010 maybe yeah because i was in things changed so fast yeah or maybe 2015 Uh, anyway yeah I mean, it, it is actually one of the things that I think when I go back and look at these stories is, well, you know, like uh, it, it, reality comes at you much faster than fantasy does. Um, right. Yeah. Because turns out it was unrealistic to think that we would address climate change, but completely realistic <laughs> to think uh, that gay marriage uh, would be, you know, nationwide. Yeah. And you're one of those authors. It's fun because you do really anchor your stories in kind of political, environmental, all that sort of scientific reality. So I love that. It's almost like this little time capsule from, you know, 10 years ago. There's a few other authors that do stuff like that. And I love that. Um, Let's see, just a couple of little things. I love the mixed point of view. So instead of useful arts, which is all Lex, you're in both Clark and Lex's head. Oh, you have a great Lois in this one, by the way. Um, She's very like, sharp and spiky she's smoking cigarettes that's like my ideal lois is that she's just difficult and smoking and um do you have like a a lois in your head that you kind of base her off of that's a really good question so i i admit that you know i actually loved lois and clark yes um so a little bit of that although uh i also remained affected in long term by uh i don't know if you remember that one episode in lois and clark where the time traveler from the future comes back and he's like you know people have a lot of questions about you mostly how galactically stupid you would have to be to like miss clark (laughs) i don't remember that one i'm gonna have to watch that uh it's 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 quite funny uh so uh, i it is true like uh, you know i'm clark kent I'm Superman. Uh, that's uh, that really should be hard to miss, which I have tried to futz with in my stories by having him wear a, an actual facial disguise uh, to make it a little less stupid. Um, yeah. So I guess, yeah, a little, a, a lot of Terry Hatcher, um, a little bit of you know, hard boiled gumshoe detective. 
Yeah, I thought Erica Durant did a, a pretty good job. I didn't really like her being in so I kind of like a Lois that is just she's a city creature. She's at the planet. She's like wearing Jimmy Choo shoes and right. Yeah, having her in. I know they kind of had to do it in Smallville just because they had to introduce her at some point, but I think it kind of softens her up in a way that I don't like. And um, but I always loved um, Margot Kidder. I liked her too. Oh yeah, absolutely. She's fun. But yeah. For some reason, growing up, I didn't watch Lois and Clark. And now that I've been uh, starting to watch the Superman and Lois, the new show on the CW, I'm kind of like, oh, I need to go back and watch Terry Hatcher. I mean, it's not a great show, but they are quite adorable. Yeah, there's a scene uh, in particular that I remember where she's... um, Clark, for some reason, is renting a car. And I think she's found out. Maybe she found out for the first time. I'm not sure. But she's like just tearing into him like, you're a lying liar. You're lying who lies. You're, that's all you do is lie. You're lying right now. Why does Superman need a car? You don't need a car. You can fly. And it's just like such a – and she like slams the car door on Clark and he's just like, but Lois. <laughs> right. Oh, yep. man. Okay. Yeah. So just read Repent at Leisure. It's, it's so great. It's so much fun. And it's like – yeah, if you read any of your 50 stories, you know that Rivkati, you like to play with trope and make some, just like in Useful Arts, it's supposed to be a sex pawn, but it's like so much more. So I love that you're able to take those sort of cliche things and right. then. Well, that's what they're good. Like they're cliches for a reason, which it like done right. They tell you a lot about the character and they're a ton of fun while they're telling you a lot about the character, which is, I guess, the other the, the other really big one uh, that. Uh, I am very fond of and I wrote in like I wrote most of it in one huge rush is skin deep yes. the body swap one I'm so uh, glad where, I read that earlier this week and and that too is like you know so so once you once you pick a trope you just like keep thinking of like okay what's the stupidest possible thing that could happen or, or, or you know what's the most embarrassing possible thing that could happen and it, you know it's just it's such a rich vein uh, especially if you're willing to do comedy and the good thing about writing, of course, is like, it's not like you're going to run out of budget, right? Yeah. So you know, do the stupidest thing you can think of. Yeah. And that one just very briefly. Yeah. That one should be, you think it'd be silly. Clark wakes up and he's got boobs. He's a woman. Um, one of my favorite things in that is your, and I've seen other authors sort of do this, but your treatment of Jarrell, like Clark goes, I don't care if it's the caves or if he goes to the actual forges, but he goes to Jarrell like, what's going on why am i a girl and Gerald basically like says like well you're not worthy of being a man and just this kind of like arrogant just pettiness right. oh man and clark's like that's sexist yeah <laughs> but he can't reason with him so he has to go but eventually yeah it gets to this deeper level of like lex still being in love with clark even even though he's in a different body and you kind of get the sense that Lex sort of knew the whole fucking time and Clark's an idiot and thought he was getting away with it. <laughs> That's right. I mean, so my, okay, my own personal take on this is it took Lex maybe a week. Yeah. Like, well, he was still, he was, he knew that there was something. He didn't know what it was. And then eventually he decided, okay, you know, sex swap. Yeah, it's fun because in a well-written story like this where you know the author has thought about it, you can kind of read between the lines and go like, well... You know, Clark's story is that, like, he's this girl friend and he's visiting Pete, but he's never at Pete's. He doesn't seem to have a job. Uh, why is he here, like, three months later? He has no plans on, like, you know, what to do with his day. He's just going along. So it's like, <laughs> it's like it doesn't take a genius to figure out that, like, this isn't something's up. 
And so you can, yeah, that, and then Lex falls out a little bit at the end, but it's so funny. I don't know if that's dramatic irony or what it is, but the reader can kind of tell, like, come on, Clark, this is a stupid, st- you're such a bad liar. <laughs> but but we forgive him. We forgive him. He's so sweet and adorable, and we love Clark. Um, maybe the last one to talk about today is Locked Room Mystery, because I feel like ah, it's a great okay. bookend, because you, so you started this one in 2012. And it's three chapters. It's not that long. It's 6,000 words or so. Um, but you didn't finish it until 2019. Um, so, yeah, tell me yeah. a little bit about Locked Room Mystery. So, uh, you know, back when it was easier for me to write, uh, I, I was doing these things where I would take prompts for Hanukkah uh, and do, uh, you know, short stories. And I got a number of Smallville prompts, including uh, more President Lex which, of course, is always fun. Uh, and so, you know, I started uh, this just with the scenario that they were locked in a room together, uh, and it ended on a bit of a cliffhanger, and then the next year somebody said, well, continue that. Uh, and then so I did, and I ended up on another cliffhanger. And then I just got stuck, right? Uh, it just didn't happen. And then finally, uh, you know, one day I sort of looked around and I said, you know what? It's ready. Like, the story is ready. I, I know what I want to say. And it really did feel like like a last love letter to Smallville, right? That I understood the show in a different way, maybe, which was fitting for, you know, an adult Clark talking to an adult Lex. So I was able to finish it in a way that, you know, I think felt right uh, and sort of say goodbye. I mean, maybe not forever, but it felt like a really sweet ending. Were you were you writing in other fandoms at that time? Um, so, you know, I, I have not written much in the past couple of years. I've sort of been slowing down. Uh, and also I just don't have a main fandom right now. Yeah. Uh, and it's hard. So, uh, it's just hard for me, you know, if, unless I'm really, really into a show and it just hasn't happened for the past couple of years. But, um, I was, you know, I was still writing in Supernatural, uh, a reasonable amount. Yeah. Did you find, um, I don't know, I have some WIPs or whips or whatever you call them that I know I want to get back to someday, but it is hard to get into that brain space. Um, is it something that you had that third chapter kind of partially written or did you have to get back into that no, space? And, no, yeah. actually, you know, I had no idea at all. And then I reread it and, and then I knew. Uh, and, you know, because it is short. It's not like I needed a, a huge amount of structure. But yeah. um, People would occasionally pop back into the notes and say, oh, you know, I'd really like to see uh, what happens next. And finally, that worked. I mean, usually it doesn't work when someone says that to you. Um, But uh, in this one specific instance, it did. And so you kind of sat down and wrote chapter three sort of all all in one go? Yep. Oh, I love that. Yeah, so just, um, yeah, you, you guys can read this. But I love also the title, Locked Room Mystery. That comes from kind of crime fiction, like, um. I read from Wikipedia, typically involves a crime scene with no indication as to how the intruder could have entered or left. And there are clues, and typically the reader is the one putting clues together. But in this case, um, you're taking the plot point from the end of Smallville, where Lex right. has lost all his memories. And uh, he, yeah, he and Clark end up in a locked room together. And Lex kind of, there's enough familiarity or something that Clark is putting off that makes him think, do I know you? Right. And then the kind of the next chapter two is uh, Lex kind of gather. So he's the one solving the mystery, gathering up right. the clues. Um, Lena is also, uh, there's a daughter in this one. 
Another thing from canon. Yeah, yeah. Lena Lena's occasionally Lex's sister, but then sometimes he has a daughter that he's named after, I think, his sister. Right. Yeah. Right. Did you just want to give Lex something to kind of anchor him into the present or what, kind of what was Lena? So I knew about the Lena uh, daughter of Canon and I had I actually had this whole long scenario in my mind, which was I never did uh, write out where, you know, uh, he has his daughter and manages to raise her basically right. And, and that's sort of a redeeming thing for him. And so I just borrowed her. Yeah, it is definitely like this concrete thing where Lex maybe more so like freed from memories, the bad memories right. of his father really is a great guy and can be a love. All Lex wants to do is like love and be loved. Right. Oh, and, you know, rule the world. Yes, that too. Yeah, that's this dichotomy of Lex. I feel like some fan fiction, they really soften Lex up and it's like, well, that's not Lex. Like, you have to keep that danger to him, even though he's he has good in him, too. Yes, but also danger. But also yes. danger. Um, and I love that uh, there's a plot point that comes from Lena where... Clark, he asked if she's got the same meteor rock mutation that Lex does. This actually, this obviously triggers a mother bear reaction from Lex. And he's like, what do you know about my daughter? And so Clark kind of is like, I'll ask my friend Superman. <laughs> so sure. Superman takes Lex and Lena to the fortress. And I always love and fix where Lex gets to go to the fortress because his little sciencey mind gets to like, <gasps> check out all this new technology right uh, but i was gonna read just very quickly there's a little part that always makes me laugh where clark is contemplating taking lex to the fortress and uh so he agrees and he says um clark swallowed i'll take you both he said he just have to order the fortress not to respond to any commands other than his and to disguise itself with something like the technology it used to disguise his face when he was superman and maybe to speak in Farsi, which, if nothing else, might distract Lex. Or induce him to start a war with Iran. No, Farsi was probably not the way to go here. French? Lex wouldn't bother to go to war with France. And that part just always makes me laugh. <laughs> Sorry, France. Sorry, France. Sorry for if we have any French listeners. I don't know. We love France. Um... Yeah, so it's just a really beautiful, yeah, like you said, it's a beautiful little love letter. There's obviously a reconciliation and a nice little smooch at the end. And um, Oh, yeah, and just the obvious thing, which is always a beautiful thing when it happens, when you use that trope of Clark using like a disguise, in this one he finally drops the whole thing in front of Lex and drops his walls down. Um I think that's a benefit to going with that tack of the costume has that technology to disguise Clark's face. You can literally drop the, the screen, yeah. drop the walls down. Are there any other like stories you would recommend out of your own to kind of like say, this is a personal favorite or this is one you should read? I mean, those are just three, but there's 50 stories to choose from. Uh, you know, uh, like I said, at this point, uh, you know, I basically have affection uh, for them all. Yeah. Um, the the body swap one the switch a comedy of terrors is another longer uh, but also like basically you get to do comedy 
uh, all the way through with like ridiculous situations where Clark is in Lex's body and Lex is in Clark's body and they do exactly the stupid things that you would expect them to do. <laughs> that one is fun. <laughs> Which uh, that one must have been a little uh, confusing just because Clark is Lex and Lex is Clark and yes, you do have to kind of keep in your head like who's who in that one. But it's, it is so much fun. Especially Lex is like such a little shit in that one. He's he's a troublemaker. He really is. He's but you know it, he 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 doesn't get the chance to be irresponsible that much. He doesn't, and you and know if someone puts you in a body like Clark Kent, I mean, what are you going to do? Uh, right. Yes. Exactly <laughs> correct. Lex is all of us, really. He is all of us in that one. Yeah, just a couple that I printed off. Epic misunderstanding is such a fun one. The premise. Something on the aftermath of Doomsday killing Clark, Lex having to step in and help the Justice League when Wonder Woman asks. And that one's basically um, everyone thinks that Clark and Lex are together when they're actually not, but they end up being right. Uh, Golden Rule. Th- this is one that um, I we have this little Discord chat just with a few. There's like five or six of us that talk about Clex. Um, and this is one that the gals on there mentioned that they loved. And also Separus did a remix of this. Oh, yeah, that's really good. Which is really good. So that's kind of a Lex amnesia fic. Oh, and there's a couple, like, kind of of end-of-the-world alien invasion ones that you should read. The Presence of Fire and When the Tempest Hurled. When the Tempest Hurled. Oh, that's like... I didn't get to reread this one, but I've read it before. It's so good. Um, And that one's a... I love the Houseman poem that you use. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, and this kind of the... um, sitting in a tavern while the tempest hurled and we are but men kind of kind of waiting for the storm to pass because you have to um but it's one of those where lex is a natural leader of men and you get to watch him do that um those are my some of my favorites um but real quick to end i like to do a little quick like the kind of rapid fire question answer so if you don't mind i'll uh just ask you these what are you currently reading fanfic or literature Oh boy. Um, so I just finished the follow up book to that. What is her name? The, so she's had a couple of different like working names. Um, and wait, I'm going to pull this up. Do it. Catherine Addison, uh, the Goblin Emperor. So there's a follow up book and I just uh, read that. And then I'm in the middle of a book by C.S. Friedman, This Virtual Night. So she writes, uh, science fiction, sort of hard science fiction with lots of aliens. And I'm also in the middle of The Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson, who I think is fantastic. And it's basically philosophy with like a thin skin of science fiction on it, uh, philosophy and like climate reporting, <laughs> um, which is fine. He's very good at that. What else am I reading? Creatures of Empire, uh, how domestic animals basically shaped the early uh, American uh, system. So it's actually about livestock and Native Americans and English colonists and how they interacted, uh, which is kind of cool. Uh, so fanfic wise, you know, so I'm uh, at this point, I'm sort of just revisiting old favorites because, like I said, I don't really have an active fandom. But, uh, you know, I'm always happy to reread Astolat and uh, including her Clark Lex stuff. Oh, it's so great. What and you kind of already answered this. Maybe you don't have one. Um, what is your current obsession? Like a TV, movie, books, media. Yeah, so I'm not really obsessed with anything. Um, I'm looking forward to the third and apparently final season of Lost in Space. Mm. Uh, uh, let's see. I really enjoy Black Lightning. Like 
which my basic take on Black Lightning is like, what if someone made Luke Cage but had fun with it? Like these people are having fun. It's not fantastic, but it is uh, like uh, these people are enjoying making their superhero show. Uh, And that is that is wonderful to watch. And is there anything else that I'm sort of actively in? Um, Oh, Winona Earp also. And then, of course, I'm uh, waiting somewhat worriedly for the end of the Magnus Archives. Oh, cool. Yeah, I've heard of Bla- I've heard Black Lightning's good. I haven't checked that one out either, but I've pretty much heard nothing but positive stuff about it. Any current or future writing projects you want us to keep an eye out for? You know, I'm really, uh, let's just say I'm hopeful that uh, eventually I'll get the spark back. But um, unfortunately, uh, for me, it just hasn't happened in recent years. And I just, uh, you know, I'd love to do it again. I'm, I haven't given up on myself. But uh I, there's actually, I actually do have a kind of leverage story basically in my head if I ever just sat down to write it. Um, but that's about it. Cool. Oh, you'll get it back. You, uh, you're an extremely talented, capable writer. So yeah, it's just getting that spark back. Name uh, one of your favorite Smallville stories of all time. Okay. Well, I think I already mentioned Manifest Destiny. Yes. Um, and then let's see. God, there's so much. Uh, right. So the Miris's work is really yeah. good. And then the one that I kept thinking of when we were talking was my Aslot where she uh, does. Um, is it the two Lexes? The two Lexes. <laughs> yes. I love it. That one might be through the looking glass. Yeah, that's the- right. And 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 uh, with the little green and purple headers, depending on which Lex it is. Uh, oh, I think I've only read I that one on AO3, so I didn't get yeah, that formatting. So, so, so it has little purple headers when it's um, Smallville Lex and little green headers when it's uh, um, Justice League Lex. Uh, and it's, it, uh, you know, I think it's fantastic. And it does point out, like, uh, right, you really do have to choose. Like, he can't both be a super genius scientist who's constantly making lab innovations uh, and also, like, this incredible politician. Uh, he could probably be one, but it's very hard to be both. Uh, and so I, I just love that she lets him be both by splitting him in two. Uh, oh, man, that one is one of my favorite. I remember the first time I read it, I was a little, I didn't, I had no idea what the premise was, so I didn't know quite what I was reading. And so I had to sort of read, like, partway and then go back and go, oh, Luthor versus Lex. And it's just, right. yeah. And with I think without that formatting probably made it harder on AO3. But, oh, man, that one's so worth the, worth the effort. Yeah. And this is similar. Name an author, and it can be Smallville or otherwise, Name an author that you think is underread. Oof. Maybe this is this is going to be a little out of the blue, but um, everyone should go read the Jeffrey Ford's How Much for Just the Planet, which is a uh, Star Trek tie-in novel, but it's actually just a slapstick comedy, uh, which you can kind of tell from the title. Uh, it starts out with an inflatable rubber starship, <laughs> and it gets stupider and more hilarious from there uh and so it's all the characters you love but they're starring in a slapstick comedy oh my god can you find that online or is it in print i think you can there's a kindle version i think um because i think they've made all the those the old tie-ins uh available these are the pocket you know from the 80s oh that Uh, sounds fun oh it's so wonderful what smallville character point of view do you enjoy reading or writing most that's uh, you know I'm fairly Catholic about it. Uh, you know, as, as, as long as you're doing them justice, 
uh, I'm happy to be in anybody's head. Uh, and that, that includes, uh, you know, Chloe and, and Lana, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure I ever did, uh, you know, by the time Lois came in, as you said, like the canon was getting less and less interesting to me. Yeah. So I'm not sure that I, uh, that I can think of much like great Lois, but basically everybody has been pretty, uh, you know, done well. They're all interesting. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, I love your Lois. And uh, I think it reminds me a lot of, uh, I believe it's Separus is Lois. She's oh, yeah. real snappy and yeah, sharp. I'm hoping to talk to Separus. We'll see if that happens. Um, you get one of Superman's powers. Which one is it? Ooh, um, super speed, I guess. That one would be fun. Yeah. Most people say flight, but I do like the super speed. Of course, that one kind of goes hand in hand. You can kind of do both. I guess that's true. Well, so if you could, if you could only fly like at human speed, <laughs> how useful a talent would that be? <laughs> that's true. Um, you kind of answered this one. Who is your Lois Lane? Would you say it's Terry uh, yeah, Hatcher? Hatcher. Um, who is your Clark Kent? I'm always of two minds about because I love Tom Welling, but he's kind of a different Clark than like a Christopher Reeve Clark. Yeah. So well, so. Yeah, I'm not sure I have a specific Clark Kent. I think there, uh, I mean, Tom Welling might come closest, uh, uh, you know, as for who's, who's, who's Superman. I sort of think Justice League <laughs> Superman is. Um, or I could go, uh, uh, well, maybe even Tower of Babel Superman. That's, well, that's pretty. Ooh, I don't know. Is that one, was that one uh, an animated one? <laughs> No, uh, I don't think they ever animated it. Um, it's uh, but it is a trade, um, and it's uh, it, it's one of the, my favorite Batman characterizations because basically, uh, you know, you know that Batman has a secret plan to take out every member of the Justice League. Yeah. So in Tower of Babel, you find out what they are. Cool. Uh, oh, Bruce, he's always he's always got plans yeah. within plans. <laughs> yeah. Um. I always phrase this one kind of funny, but you can say whatever. Who is your Lex Luthor and why is it Michael Rosenbaum? <laughs> right. Uh, right. Clancy Brown uh, is also acceptable to me. <laughs> so uh, I think it's Michael Rosenbaum because you know why he is the way he is. Yeah. And and you know that there's actually there there actually is a very good man in there. Um, who has been, in some sense, mortally wounded in ways that make him a bad man, uh, or at least a man who does bad things, right? No. Uh, but uh, out of completely understandable motives, um, some uh, they're still not always excusable. And you know, I thought it, you know it was rich and complicated and and very very sad. Yeah, he makes you feel so many things, and his ability to emote that on his face is pretty amazing. Yep. Well, I'm going to let you go. Um, thank you so much for joining me. And uh, it's fun. I just, again, I would just say that I think the Smallville fandom has put out some of the best fan fiction I've ever read. And oh, yeah. You're a big, you're a huge part of that. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Well, thank you uh, for listening. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next time.